Welcome to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts today, Angie Fryermuth. And I'm Kat McCain. Today's guest, we have Susan Layton with the Corps Headquarters, Deputy Chief of Planning Community of Practice, Amy Guise, the Chief of Planning Division for the Baltimore District, and Cindy Tejeda, Watershed and Floodplain Program Manager for the South Pacific Division. Thank you all for joining us today. For today's episode, we are learning more about the Corps' technical assistance programs. But before we get started, we want to know more about our guests. So starting with Susan, then Cindy, and then Amy, tell us a bit about yourself, position, and how you got to where you are today. Well, thank you. I'm Susan Layton. I am Deputy Chief for the Planning Community of Practice at Headquarters. So with that, my job is really to focus on planner development, process improvement, communication to the field on our programs, our processes, and new guidance and information. Also within my position, I work on communication of our programs and our projects to the external community, so beyond the Corps of Engineers. So in in this role, I I do feel like I I get to be an advocate for this type of program that we're going to talk about today. So it's something that I'm very excited about. As far as how I got to my position, I've been with the Corps for almost 20 years. I started with Jacksonville District doing environmental compliance and ecosystem restoration. And I did that for about 10 years and then moved on to Jacksonville District uh, where I uh, was chief of planning um, in that district and was able to work um, both on uh, larger studies uh, that we, under our general investigations program, as well as lots of programs like this where we get to to help localities in many different ways. So excited to be here today and talk some more about these important programs. Great, good morning. My name is Cindy Tejeda. I work for the South Pacific Division of the Corps of Engineers. I've been with the Corps for 23 years. I started as a Department of Army intern after I graduated from UC Berkeley. I have a degree in conservation biology, so I've always been more of a systems thinker. And this job that I'm in right now is a watershed and floodplain program manager, where I do a lot of integrated water resources management, watershed planning, and I'm the program manager for our technical assistance programs here in the region. And I've been able to see that these programs deliver integrated solutions for local communities, and I'm really excited to talk about them here today. And I'm Amy Geis. I'm the Chief of the Planning Division at the Baltimore District. We have a team uh, that ranges from 55 to 60 planners. We do have an installation support branch, which provides planning services to our installations. We have a civil works branch. And a few years ago, we stood up a standalone technical assistance branch. So I'm really excited uh, to be able to highlight uh, the technical assistance programs today. I started with the core as an ecologist uh, in planning division, spent time as a project manager, and then came back to planning division as a branch chief, where I was really focusing on developing projects and not just executing them. And then when I became the planning chief, I really took a more strategic approach to how The core has these programs and can use them to help deliver on the nation's needs. Uh, They're very powerful programs, but maybe not very well known. Uh, And I've become very passionate about them. And again, very glad that we could stand up a technical assistance branch in Baltimore. Well, thank you all for joining us today. And as Kat mentioned earlier, we're going to learn a little more about what programs the core has to help uh, others with their water resource challenges. 
So Susan, can you talk a little bit about the technical assistance programs the Corps has available? Absolutely. So I think the, the term technical assistance is interesting because not everybody may have the same definition for actually what technical assistance needs means. I think most often it is viewed as things outside of our construction authorities. So ways that we can support communities in ways other than construction and usually our smaller programs. So rather than our general investigations, which are really large studies, or our continuing authorities program, which are our smaller construction authorities. With technical assistance, we're talking more about our planning assistance to states, our floodplain management services, and support for others to some degree, working with other agencies where they're uh, outside of the cost share with the core, um, but in our tribal partnership program and some of our tribal programs. So really our, our technical assistance programs are ways um, that we can target helping states local communities and uh, tribal partners in any water resource areas. So each of these programs have different definitions of exactly what we can do to get at an issue, um, but uh, they are all obviously have to be connected to water. That's what we do within the, the Corps of Engineers. And many of these authorities allow us to get a little bit outside of some of what our normal mission areas are. And normally on our large studies, we're really focused on navigation, ecosystem restoration, flood risk management, where with some of these technical assistance programs, we can go a bit beyond that and support localities in their, in their watershed planning, sometimes even in water quality issues uh, in, under the planning assistance to states. So it, it really allows us to work more directly with communities and states on those water resource issues that they need support on not necessarily moving to construction, um, but we can help them answer questions um, that will help them to solve their water resource issues. Thanks, Susan. And now that our listeners know what these programs are, Cindy, could you kind of describe to our listeners how these technical assistance programs work? Sure. So really it just comes down to we start with outreach so that communities understand what kinds of services um, might be available to help solve their problems. And it's really as simple as getting a letter of request from a community, from an organization or government entity. They say, I have these issues, you know, can you please take a look at them? And then once we get that letter of request, we can get started. We would then put in a request to our headquarters office for funding and um, the funding goes simply year to year. There's always more requests than there are, than there are um, dollars available. But in any case, we can um, advocate for those projects, receive the funding at some point. And then it's really um, just a delegated authority down to the district level. The, the regional headquarters office does play a role in ensuring that we are complying with policies and guidance on, on how to proceed through the technical assistance programs. But really it's a delegated down to the district level where the district project teams can work directly with their sponsors, do the analysis, finish the report, and then we're done. Very interesting. So do these programs follow like the traditional phases, planning phases, timelines, or are they on a completely different trajectory? What's really nice about the programs is they're super flexible. They don't have the associated milestones and checkpoints that a traditional Corps of Engineers feasibility study would have. 
And so we're able to move through the studies fairly quickly within a year and a half or a couple of years, depending on the complexity of the study. And as I mentioned, there really aren't any vertical team checkpoints through the study process. So the teams are able to move as quickly as they're um, able to put um, people and funding onto the project. So Amy, can anyone partner with the core on these programs? That's another um, very flexible part of these programs is that we can partner with our, what I call our traditional partners, such as uh, states and counties and NGOs. Uh, obviously, we have the ability to partner with tribes through the tribal partnership program, which is a specific technical assistance program, and there are some great benefits there. We also, I believe, have an opportunity to partner with what I call non-traditional partners. And we've seen a lot of interest from partners such as banks, uh, financial institutions, or other entities who have assets in the floodplain that they care about and may want to have flood risk management consideration or analyses done uh, for actions that they can take. So we have seen that there are non-traditional partners, those that we haven't traditionally worked with, but who have a great interest and can actually implement projects where we would not be the implementing agency, but now they feel they have the analysis and the information to invest their money for that solution. So it sounds like there's lots of benefits from like, as a core planner myself, I see some benefits of this program just from time efficiency and getting stuff out and helping, you know, helping our partners. Um, but Susan, can you kind of explain more? What are the benefits of people using this program that aren't internal to us? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the exciting things about these programs. They tend to be smaller kind of in dollar amounts and scope. Um, which allows us to be more flexible, more agile. The timelines can be faster. As Amy mentioned, we have some more flexibility with who we might partner with. And also, again, what the primary uh, goal of the project is. Sometimes we can go beyond some of the specific authorities that we have to remain within within our large programs. So I think we really have ability here to reach um, more partners, perhaps some of those partners are non-federal partners that don't have the, the type of budgets and funding to partner with us on really large projects. Um, we can reach those um, with, the more, with the smaller projects. And we also don't have as much strict guidance about exactly how we do, how we implement a lot of these. For example, our planning assistance to the states, we don't, you know, we don't have specific guidelines of exactly how we do an analysis and because we're not necessarily justifying a specific project, we're really providing this assistance to help on whatever the water resource issues of the particular partner is. So it, it really allows us that broad ability to um, look at many issues. And I think the benefit often to our partners is they get a Corps of Engineers, Corps of Engineer report that kind of has our core castle behind it. So they can then use it to, to show that it's not just maybe um, their locality that has investigated this issue, but the core was able to come in, look at the issue, provide some recommendations, and that might allow them to get a little farther, both on leveraging their um, funding within their locality and then to, to maybe go for bigger projects um, because they have that, that Corps of Engineers um, support behind them in their analysis. So I think that's a huge benefit to these programs and um, the, the ability to hopefully see like long-term improvements in some of these areas. I know it's always helpful to kind of hear some of the success stories so people can better understand how the technical 
assistance programs have been helpful. And so, Cindy, and then if the others want to comment, uh, can you provide our listeners with a couple examples of successful technical assistance projects? Sure. I have a really good example from the Sacramento district. Uh, we worked with the Skull Valley Go Shoot tribe. And so we started out through a non-structural interagency project, which is um, specifically under floodplain management services. And we entered into this partnership, just working with the tribe, trying to get to, to know their, um, their locality, their water resources problems, and discovered that they had been working with BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs, who didn't know that the Corps of Engineers could provide technical assistance that we worked on floodplain issues. And so the, the beginning of the partnership was really all about bringing all of the agencies to the table. So we were able to bring in FEMA and NRCS and BIA and some local jurisdictions to help the tribe um, better understand what their issues were. So we started out with a floodplain management plan where we were able to incorporate some of their oral histories of flooding. They had never written it down before, so they didn't have documentation to show where the problem areas were. So that was the first start. And then once we um, established those partnerships, we moved into an FPMS project where we did analysis of the floodplain to better understand where the water was going and where their problem areas were. And from that step, they were able to bring the partnership together again to develop a tribal mitigation plan, which helped them understand what actions they needed to take to reduce their flood risk. And from there, they were able to secure a $3 million grant from NRCS for implementation. So it really shows how the core castle can really play a significant role sort of legitimizing the analysis, bringing partnerships to bear, and really leveraging those authorities and appropriations, not just that the core has, but that other agencies have. And then one other example I wanted to bring up was the fact that we can bring in contributed funds for FPMS. And so one example of that is when the Oroville Dam was overtopped through flooding, um, they had to evacuate the whole town of Oroville downstream because the, the emergency spillway was starting to erode and they were afraid that the dam would fail. Due to our partnerships through the Silver Jackets program, we, will, we were able to bring in not only planners, but engineers and geotechnical folks to help the state of California better understand the site conditions, um, why the dam was failing, and um, review and provide engineering advice on their efforts to rebuild that structure. And so we were able to get this agreement in place within 30 days. We received $3 million from the state of California, and we were ready to go as soon as we received that funding. So it was a really quick response, and we provided some necessary services, again, bringing in the core castle to the state so that they could leverage our expertise and, and build a, a safer dam. And I'll just follow on to, yes, so, the, so that was um, a great example. Cindy's first example talking about how technical assistance then was leveraged to receive an NRCS grant. That's just another great benefit of these programs. It provides not only the insight to the community about what their problem is and what the solutions might be, but oftentimes to be able to get to implementation, they're looking at a lot of other agencies for granting that have granting authority. And so if we're able to provide a product that allows them to make a more full 
application because they now have a more full understanding of the problem and solutions, they are positioned better to receive that funding. So that was just a superb example. Cindy, I just wanted to, to comment on that because that's really what we want to see everywhere. There are definitely opportunities. We just have to connect them. Regarding some of the examples, there's a really the sky is the limit, you know, for floodplain management services, if it has to do with flooding, we can look at it, whether that's flood warning systems, mapping, modeling, looking at alternatives, risk reduction, structural, non-structural, natural nature based, and the list goes on, uh, resilience planning, watershed planning. And for planning assistance to states, that's anything to do with water. So whether that's drought management, flooding as well can be addressed there, water quality, and some other aspects uh, related to water planning can be looked at under that program. One of the examples I'll share is with Muncie, Pennsylvania, where we partnered with Lycoming County, the Susquehanna River Basin Commission, and the Muncie Bank and Trust. And so this is the example with the bank. And they were very interested in engaging in a project that laid out some of the alternatives available to them. They were interested, local banks are very interested in uh, the community fabric and what retains communities and so that people aren't moving out of areas once they're flooded or not moving into areas because they believe that they're uh, at high flood risk. So they were very interested in investing in their own community to reduce flood damages and risk. And they understood that maybe the Corps of Engineers and other agencies couldn't necessarily follow through on implementation because it's not an area that has a very high BCR. So they partnered uh, with us in the county and the Susquehanna River Basin Commission, and we looked at their stormwater system because a lot of the flooding, uh, not only there, but in many areas of the country, there's a contribution that's coming from stormwater that isn't fully understood. They had a convergence of rivers, so we looked at riverine flooding. So they knew they got wet, but they didn't really know exactly from what source they were getting wet. Was it the river? Was it the culverts? Was it a combination? So we were able to come in, look at those aspects of the watershed, and then look at possible solutions upstream. Uh, we're also able to give them some information about the economics and the cost of some of the solutions. And so that is part of their local resilience plan. So this is a piece of a broader resilience plan. And uh, we started out, we were new to each other, so we learned a lot from them and they learned a lot from us. And I was convinced that through that experience, this example exists everywhere. <laughs> and so I've uh, really been following that to see how we can upscale and apply it in other places. And happy to provide an, an update that just a couple of weeks ago, I was invited to speak at a mortgage risk summit with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So that's really upscaling, but what was fascinating was that this, this industry and these partners think about risk in the same way that the Corps of Engineers do. They, they talk about it in the same way and they are concerned about the flooding to people and property the same way that we are. And so it was interesting because we were both very familiar with our own area of expertise, yet we were together and knew very, very little about each other, which really kind of made it the perfect marriage. I say we're kind of dating right now. I hope we get to uh, the marriage part. We're really just coming together as partners. But that's a great example of how our technical assistance can help the communities really understand what's going up on so that they can take the next step for implementation, which is really what we want. 
those are great examples. I love the success stories. And it sounds like this, these programs have such great flexibility and just very diverse stakeholders. But with that flexibility and diversity, there has to be some challenges. So, Amy, what are some of the challenges with these technical assistance programs that you have faced? I think for me at a district level where we're really uh, charged with knowing our stakeholders, knowing what they need, uh, we might know where those areas of risk are, but the public doesn't know what we know. So we know when it floods, we, you know, our modelers, they're looking at certain areas on the map because they know there's a high risk there. And we always ask, well, if you know that, what have we done to make sure that that community realizes they're at that kind of risk? And so then it's on us to go out and create that meet and greet opportunity. So I think a, a huge challenge is that the public is unaware of these programs and how to use them. And historically, the Corps has not been very good at promoting these programs because they were not very well funded. It was difficult to make, you didn't wanna oversell the program that it was available if there wasn't enough money. I, I do believe that's changing. I think the nature of what's going on across the country uh, is requiring us to look at all of the programs that we have, look at those best fits to help communities and not everything is going to be core construction. Uh, let's face it, and it shouldn't be. And so whatever we can do to amplify these programs and really increase uh, the outreach and public awareness, which really means you know, meeting our stakeholders where they are. It might be going to an evening meeting and doing a 20 minute presentation and not a one hour webinar at one in the afternoon. Coming into a meeting that they're already hosting so that they understand um, that we're there to help, but we're not going to get into the technical details. We can just talk to them about the flexibility of the program, that it can be done efficiently, that we can leverage funding, and it can help them take the next step to solving their problem. If I could just add on to something that Amy said as far as seeing change in the future, um, I, I definitely wanted to say that we're seeing that in the appropriations as well. A lot of these programs are seeing better and more consistent funding than we did in the past. Um, and, and I think it's my understanding, it's an intentional um, recognition of how important these programs are to the localities, to the states, and also with limited large studies that start every year. We have a, a, a set number of new start large studies that we do. There is an increased need for this technical support you know, around the nation. So I, what we have seen in recent years and what I would expect to continue to see is increased support, um, you know, at an administration level and at an agency level for the use of these programs. Um, and I do also reiterate that I, I think one of the, the obstacles to that currently is just getting the word out there, both internally, it's on us to, to make sure that all of our districts are leveraging these programs as much as possible. Um, but most importantly, getting the, the understanding out to those localities uh, and states that might uh, be able to use these programs and make sure they're aware of them and, and how to get in touch with the core um, to do so. We're nearing the end of our time together, but before we part ways, I, I do want to stay talking about the future a little bit more. So, Amy, what is the future of technical assistance programs? Oh, the future is that there's a technical assistance branch in every office that we we are connected to our communities. Uh, they know our names and we know theirs. I mean, that's what would make it really, really exciting. This really 
has to go beyond information on a website and that makes it hard. To be honest, in this more virtual environment, we are a little more locally based. And so the two hours that I used to commute a day, you know, why can't I be uh, using that for some stakeholder engagement and some old fashioned uh, meet and greets to really get the word out? One of the other ways, I mean, doing outreach is difficult, but one of the ways in Baltimore we've tried to maximize that is to make sure that our program managers are aware of all the programs, even if it's not the program they manage. So that when they're meeting with a stakeholder, maybe for a completely different program or a completely different purpose, they have the ability to recognize that if it's not fitting their particular program, they can take that opportunity to educate the sponsor and provide another point of contact to directly assist them and maybe talk to them about what a scope of work looks like for a technical assistance project and the timeline and how to leverage funding or in-kind services. And so trying to uh, inform people by more than just a program manager, but even educate ourselves so that we can recognize when those opportunities exist, also create that space where we can help this program be more viable and more useful. We all have it but it's maybe not as developed as it could be. So uh, the future is that we just have this program everywhere that, that communities are able to take action, that they don't feel that they don't know what the next step is and that all they know is the next time it rains, they're gonna get wet. If we can interject so that we can, we can reduce that happening or we can give them something to take action on, then we're really doing our job as a, as a civil servant. Cindy, what about you? Yeah, I would echo what Amy just said. I, I really think that we have a job to do internally in the core to, to create a vision for these programs. That's something that Amy and I have been working on for a couple of years, and it really gets down to bringing imagination to the teams. I think sometimes people think, oh, it's just floodplain maps. That sounds really boring. I want to build something, and, and it's, it's so much more than that. And we can reach partners that we will never be able to reach um, through the construction authorities. So it really is about, yeah, setting a vision and and creating a sense of energy and enthusiasm within the core, improving our outreach abilities, and then hopefully showing to our funders through Congress and headquarters and ASA that that we're doing really good things with this funding, and that we're. We're not just spending the funds, but we're leveraging the funding we get and just multiplying the benefits by leveraging other authorities, other agencies, other kinds of partnerships. And I really think it's about good governance. And, and I, you know, it, it really is the public trust at some point at the end of the day that we're serving the communities in the best way possible and we're being really wise with the dollars that we receive. And then Susan? Yes, I, I would echo both of those answers. And also, I really see these programs expanding so because we can really speak to priorities much more quickly and have responses for our partners much more, much more quickly. So, for example, currently we have some administration priorities that we're working on um, climate change, tribal issues, environmental justice. We can do analysis on these much quicker, and our partners may have the same priorities or may have different priorities um, that they want more near-term responses to. So I really think the, the nimbleness of these programs will allow us to deliver some, some um, more near-term responses and solutions 
to our partners. And another real great benefit within the core is this is a, a great development opportunity for our planners and our technical staff within the core. Sometimes it allows us to work on something a little bit different and, and maybe more interesting than just, you know, the building the beaches and the flood walls and dredging harbors. A lot of times these projects, you know, get outside of that normal core of engineers box. Um, and that's super exciting for our staff that, you know, wants to stay technically on top of what's the priorities and what's the newest science out there. So I think both externally, if we can provide um, a, a high quality um, program for our partners and then internally, it, it helps with our um, staff development. It's just a win-win all around. I wanted to make one other point, and that is that through the planning assistance program, normally that's cost shared. And so some communities find it hard to work with us because they don't have the funding or they don't have the staff to, to do in-kind services. But we do have the ability to at least work with tribes federally funded, fully federally funded through something called a tribal cost share waiver. It applies to the planning assistance program. So um, right now, if it's up to $530,000 we can waive the cost share on. So as long as we do a study that's underneath that total amount, it can be fully federally funded and we can do all the work for a tribe and they don't have to cost share. That is a great opportunity for this program and I think it's gonna be a great feature for the program as well. Thank you, Susan, Cindy, and Amy for joining us today for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. To our listeners, we want to hear from you, what topics are important to you and people you are interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together.